When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Welcome to Football Social Daily. It is the start of a new week and I hope the start of your new week is better than the start of the new dawn at St. James's Park because it didn't go so well for Newcastle against Tottenham yesterday. It's also not going so well for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United at the moment. Their 4-2 defeat to Leicester City at the weekend has heaped the pressure on Manchester United manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and we're going to talk about that on Football Social Daily. We'll be joined by a special guest to give us the inside track from a Manchester United point of view and what the next few weeks might hold for the United manager. We're also going to be looking ahead to Arsenal versus Crystal Palace. It's a London derby. Two Arsenal legends go head to head. Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta and Arsenal legend Patrick Vieira who's got off to a Pretty reasonable start at Selhurst Park. But first, let's talk about events at Old Trafford. So to talk about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and what his future may or may not hold, we're joined by a special guest on today's Football Social Daily podcast. We've got Hader from the Masterclass podcast, which is one of the amazing podcasts you can find on the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's a podcast that looks a little bit deeper, delves into the tactics and whatnot. And Hader is a passionate Manchester United fan. How are you doing, Hader? I'm doing great, thanks, and uh, that's quite a welcome. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate that. No, we're uh, we're doing great. Um, well, the football's not great, is it? But uh, the podcast is going well. We've got a lot to talk about. Not always positive, um, but uh, yeah, we're just trying to trying to break down, you know, what's going on at Manchester United without being too toxic. Yeah, mm. I'm sure you both see it on Twitter. You know, there's Oli in, Oli out. It's just it's quite pathetic to be honest so we're trying to do it in a way which is uh, less emotional uh, but it's difficult the fan base is very split at the moment but I'm doing great and you can also find the masterclass at, at TF masterclass on Twitter or you can find it on YouTube uh, so do join myself and Rob Blanchett who's also a guest that appears on here you say it is toxic in terms of the social media around Manchester United at the moment I think that's a very apt description the pressure has only mounted on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in his managerial reign at United after this weekend's 4-2 defeats to Leicester and a very poor performance. So 
what happens next? I guess there's two schools of thought here. One is that Solskjaer needs more time and the other is that he's had more than enough time to make an impact at Manchester United, which to date he's kind of failed to do. Uh, it's, it's very difficult because um, you have to look at what he's done over the last three years, which has been which has been pretty remarkable and people don't look at that. They only look at what they're seeing on the pitch. But when he came into the club and Jose Mourinho had left, there was a lot of toxicity, a lot of unhappy players. So he came in and he had to stop the rot at the time. And I've said this many, many times and I've got a lot of abuse for it on Twitter, but I said that he was a manager from A to B. So he came in, he stopped the rot, he rebuilt the squad, brought more of an ethos to the the club that, that we'd lost over the last five, six years. And he's done that uh, fantastically well. But the question was, could he make it to that next level? Could he take us from B to C? Could he win trophies? And um, last season, he he deserved to be backed in the summer and he deserved to have an opportunity this season to uh, to challenge for the title. He's been backed, guys. That's that's the reality of it. You know, he's got Jadon Sancho, he's got Varane, he's got Ronaldo. Uh, the, the big question was, was Ronaldo the right signing? And we've discussed that on the Masterclass. Um, but I think that when you're looking at Manchester United's form and you're looking at Manchester United's squad, you have to break it down on sort of the results have not been good enough, but the performances have been getting worse every single week. I'm looking at the performances. I want to see cohesion, balance. I want to see uh, a system, a well-defined system. And we're not seeing that at the moment. And too many people just say, oh, well, you know, it's one result. It's really not. That's the problem this season. Where am I sitting? He's got a couple of games. Um, and I never want to advocate a manager being so- uh, sacked, but there's a lot of quality in the squad, guys. I mean, look, Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford, you know, Bruno Fernandes, Pogba, Ronaldo, Cavani. And there's even more players, Mason Greenwood. There's just so much talent and we are massively underperforming. I think he's shown that um, it, it feels like the Frank Lampard situation where Lampard bought all these players to come in. Um, and you actually saw that his level of, of management, his coaching, his ability to drill aside, his inexperience showed. And I think that's what you're seeing with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. There are managers out there that could do a really good job with this squad. I say he's got two games. He has to be Atalanta, and I'm not very confident. They're a fantastically well-drilled side uh, with under Gasparini. Um, you know, they don't play the Italian the Italian way, do they? They play absolutely fantastic football. And then you're looking at the weekend against Liverpool. I am absolutely... It feels David Moyes-esque, you know, when Manchester United lost 3-0 that, that, that game. <laughs> that bad. <laughs> it really does feel that bad because, I mean, look at, the, look at how well-drilled they are. Liverpool, you can't say, have got the best uh, players 1-11, to but each player knows their role within the system. And this is what United players don't know at the moment. And the question is, is it the players or is it is it the management? At the end of the day, as a coach, you have to you have to you know push your instructions onto the players. They have to understand it. And it's not that the players aren't working hard because they've always worked for Solskjaer. I really just think they don't understand what they're doing out of possession. You mentioned that Solskjaer's been backed here and he's got this team of superstars. And they are a team of superstars, the likes of Bruno Fernandes and Cristiano Ronaldo. But is that team, when you look at it on paper, it's full of individuals, but is it balanced as a squad? Is this a team that another manager could come into and turn them into a title-challenging team? Because there's a fair few players in there that haven't really worked. I mean, you could argue that Paul Pogba's not really worked. Manchester United fans don't seem to be that bothered about whether he stays at the end of his contract. Jaden Sancho's yet to bed in yet. We know uh, how Van der Beek's struggled to get on the pitch this season. So is the squad there? It's a great question. Um, you, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to look at that midfield and think, nah, it's not it's not good enough. You know, McFred, do they get into even the likes of Brighton's midfield right now? And I think they're a, a great example of a side who are very well coached. Uh, probably not. Maybe McTominay does. Fred 
Fred's uh, Fred's a curious case for a Brazilian footballer where he lacks all the sort of technical fundamentals, um, but he does sort of the off the ball stuff. I think that midfield's a problem, but one of Oli's problems is you sign someone like Donny van der Beek. Why is he not really getting an opportunity? You're looking at that midfield right now. And when McTominay was out, there's this loyalty towards certain players. Maguire, for example, on the weekend, hasn't played for three weeks, hasn't trained for a week, goes right into the starting lineup. It probably has a hand in all four of the goals uh, conceded. So the way I look at it, Jim, is that United have the squad to challenge for a title. Are they good enough to win it? Probably not. But we shouldn't be sitting here, you know, five points behind Liverpool, having not even played Liverpool, uh, Chelsea, City, any of the big clubs, even Arsenal um, and uh, Tottenham. And we shouldn't be sitting this far behind. It could be eight coming to next weekend. The way I sort of look at it is that someone like Jaden Sancho, you mentioned Jaden Sancho, he was part of a very well-oiled machine at Borussia Dortmund. And that's an example of, uh, you know, system is king for me. So you look at it, the system is so strong. The players know exactly what they've got to do in the final third. You know, there's patterns of play. They know that in this scenario, you know, I have to either pull wide. This scenario, I have to go towards, make that run into the box. Uh, this scenario, I play a one-two. Manchester United don't have that. So you're bringing players in like Donny van der Beek, who's come from Ajax, a very well-defined system as well. And these players have come into a, a disorganized system, one which is probably built more on individual brilliance. And they've struggled. And there's no surprises. They've struggled. So that's why I feel that if a manager did come in who knew how to to coach the side from back to front um, and you know, they were well drilled, immediately you'll see these players elevate to the next level because they've got that individual quality and, and brilliance already. Hader, in terms of success for Manchester United this season, as you say, the squad is good enough to challenge for silverware this season. And you also mentioned how the next two games are Atalanta and Liverpool. But between now and the end of November, United have got two games against Atalanta, both in the Champions League. They've got Liverpool, Spurs, uh, Manchester City in the derby, Watford, Villarreal, Chelsea and Arsenal to round off November. So in terms of the fixture list in the next sort of seven to ten games that's looking quite difficult with the way things are going at the moment don't you think oh no i'm so i'm really not looking forward to this run of games i really am not <laughs> I'm, brutal, that. it is brutal um i had so such uh high hopes for this season i went into it and i thought this is this is a season where you know what ollie's gonna well we're gonna see what ollie can do but ollie's really gonna show that he can take the club to the next level because you know, he's done a better job than people give him credit for. Uh, and that's why I sit on this, in, in the middle where I can say, yeah, he's done this good, he's done this badly. But I look at these games, though. In the past, you look at the, the games where we can uh, sit back a little bit more, we can soak up pressure and we can hit them on the break. The biggest issue right now is Cristiano Ronaldo is, is almost a focal point in the team. And when we do play on the break, you know, he's offering almost nothing, if that makes sense, outside the box. So you've immediately lost that... Um, that sort of counter-attacking uh, sort of, uh, you know, strike that we had when we uh, were playing people like Mason and Martial, you know, more of a quicker front line. I'm looking at these results now. I really do think it's the beginning of the end. Myself and Rob discussed this on the last masterclass um, w- without being too too dramatic, but I just can't see. There's so many problems. For example, the centre-back pro- issues at the moment is a problem. Varane and Maguire aren't gelling together. The full-backs aren't getting forward um, and Luke Shaw's form has dipped. Midfield partnership is, is a mess, really. He goes back to McFred. You're looking at the front line as well. It's not balanced. Ronaldo's not pressing. He's not doing what he needs to do off the ball. And it's almost like, right, let's... But isn't that let's... the problem with signing Cristiano Ronaldo is that he isn't going to press? And I remember listening to Gary Neville talking about playing with Ronaldo back in the day and when they had 
who would it have been? It would have been Ronaldo and Tevez and Rooney. The three around Ronaldo just had to work so incredibly hard to make up for the fact that he didn't press. That's not his game. It comes down to another question of whether Manchester United made the right signings. Uh, look, Jim, that is exactly the conversation that uh, I find I'm having with a lot of Manchester United fans right now. Was it the right signing? It's probably the signing that will uh, that will cost Ole Gunnar Solskjaer his job, mainly because he just needed to strengthen that midfield. And the, it was almost like I got swept up in the nostalgia. He's my favourite Manchester United player. You know, I was growing up, 26 years old, so I, I grew up on Ronaldo, and uh, you know, my nostalgia took over. My biggest issue is that. Um, yeah, he's not going to press from the front. And that's why you did have people like Park. Rooney was so integral. You guys remember Tevez was another one. He was an absolute pit bull, wasn't he? One of my favorite players as well, Tevez. And unfortunately, he went and uh, went to the blue side of Manchester. But when I'm having a look at it, it's, it's things like this. We discussed it on the Masterclass. For example, okay, you know Ronaldo's not going to press. Then why don't you swap him and Bruno around? So when we're out of possession, Bruno's the, the first man. And then you can press. There's things like these little tweaks. I'm not look. I'm not. A, I'm not a football manager. I don't pretend that I am. I'm, I'm a keen. I'm a keen fan, and you know, I do. I do enjoy the tactics side, and I do a lot of research, and I do watch a lot of football. But there's little tweaks like that. You're thinking, I'm just a regular layman. I haven't done my football badges. Ollie, why are you not even thinking about that? You know, I don't press as a unit. They don't press at all, Jim. And that's the biggest problem. And, and Leicester found it so easy. You know, they, they could play passes straight into midfield. They were able to, uh, Tillemans was able to get onto the ball, look up and he had, you know, nobody pressing him. And he was like, right, I'm going to pick this pass. You know, I'm going to pass it around here. So um, one of my biggest issues is that we've signed Cristiano Ronaldo. And I turn around and I say, right, okay, you've got one of the greatest goal scorers of all time. Now, Oli, you have to make it work. That's that's the truth. It doesn't matter whether he presses or not. You wanted him in your system. And the problem was the system was isn't as well defined. It's not well coached. You look at the coaching team as well. McKenna is very highly rated. Very young. He's 34, I believe. He's coaching the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo, Paul Pogba, Bruno Fernandes. Michael Carrick, great player. Again, done his coaching badges. What experience does he have? Mike Phelan's there to be the feel-good guy. Bolligon the Solskjaer had a Carlos Quiros, Aureli Mullenstein, someone with more experience because he's not a tracksuit coach. He's a... You know, he's a manager. He manages the pieces. I think Ollie would be okay, but it's that almost over-loyalty towards certain players and his coaching staff, which I think will be his undoing. It's very difficult because I hate sitting and talking about, um, you know, the manager possibly going. You know, this is the fourth manager now. But I always look at him, I'm going to look at him as a success because he has built the foundations and someone needs to come in with more tactical now. Someone that's going to challenge Klopp, Guardiola and Tuchel because they are fantastic tacticians and you need to be in this in, in the modern game. And uh, unfortunately, I think Oli's time at Manchester United could be to an end should Mo Salah destroy us uh, next weekend, which I'm, I'm abs- I'll be honest with you, I'm absolutely, uh, I'm petrified because it just feels like, it just feels like it could be one of those days where I remember I was at Old Trafford when we lost 3-0 and it could have been more and, and, and Gerard scored a few, didn't he? And uh, it was amazing that day, you know, the United fan, we were singing all day, but it was one of those where you're like, this is, this is a dark, dark day for Manchester United. Do you think it's that bad, Niall, in terms of the run of games that are coming up for Manchester United? That could be the axe over his head. Because it, it, I didn't realise how brutal it was. Liverpool at home, Tottenham away, who improved slightly against Newcastle. Manchester City at home, Watford away, Chelsea away, Arsenal away. It's it's a torrid run. And at the moment, for Manchester United, you can't see him maybe getting more than four points from that little lot. Listen, the Premier League's a very strange beast and how many times have we seen Manchester United with backs against the wall, particularly under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and then they've come out and pulled a result 
out of nowhere. I mean, this team under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has pulled results out of the flames where it just looked like there was no chance they were going to get anything. I mean, the prime example would be when Solskjaer first got the job uh, around three years ago or so when United beat PSG with a team of under 23s on the pitch effectively and Rashford scored that late penalty um, to send them through in the Champions League and th- that was an amazing night and uh, certainly Manchester United still have that element of being able to pull themselves out of situations you only have to look at the game against West Ham your team a few weeks ago Jim where Jesse Lingard smashes a goal into the top corner and David De Gea ends up saving his first penalty in something like six years and you know Manchester United get the points so you have to suggest that even though the fixture list does look formidable, it's not beyond this Manchester United side to to go on a run and pick up results in these games. It doesn't feel like that's going to happen at the moment with the form and the way things have gone, but it's not out of the question. And, you know, those are just the Premier League games as well, the, the, the fixtures you list there. United are very much behind Solskjaer at this moment in time, and I don't think there's any immediate danger. However, we know football is a very strange game like I said and things can change very very quickly so you know a poor result against Atalanta and a poor result against Liverpool and the pressure will most certainly be on particularly that Liverpool game the board as Hader says as well they've backed Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and therefore I think that they feel like they need to back him as well in terms of giving him time to to put something together but then there's the other side of the coin which says he's had three years and there's no silverware to show for it which is why I understand the the kind of seesaw that some United fans are on with Solskjaer in and Solskjaer out and all of these debates on social media. You cannot deny that Solskjaer has improved things since Jose Mourinho left the club. However, has he done enough in terms of getting a trophy in the cabinet, which is ultimately what Manchester United feed off, success, silverware? That hasn't happened yet. Will it happen this season? Still very early doors, but in terms of a Premier League title, sixth at the moment after eight games, you know, as, as Hader says, five points off the top and yet to play really any of the big boys. It's, it's looking difficult for them. So the key thing to say here is maybe in the next in the next three or four weeks, by the end of November, maybe we will find out then what the future is. But for now, I can't see any immediate danger for the manager, to be honest. Final word on this, Hader. How have Manchester United got this so wrong? From the end of Alex Ferguson's reign at Manchester United, I think it's fair to say it's not been the continuation of their dominance that Manchester United fans want or expect why has it been such a rough ride so far and it's a rough ride that would appear not to be over quite yet um you can hark back to the owners I think um the infrastructure in the club when you had Sir Alex he ran everything very tight ship and Manchester United got left behind from being so far ahead they got left behind in terms of you know the structure internally within the club um what was important as well to, to the club. We always talk about the commercial side of things. One of the biggest issues is um, you look at Manchester City, maybe they're not a great example, um, but you look at, for example, I'm going to bring Brighton into it because they have a, they have a model and uh, they have a, they have a philosophy. They have a manager that's come in and matches that philosophy. When you go from David Moyes, you give him a six-year contract, sack him after seven months. By the way, great to see him, Jim, doing so well at West Ham. I mean, West Ham are one of my favourite teams at the moment to, <laughs> to watch. And I remember you came on my podcast oh, quite a while ago. I think it was before last season. And then you were like, I think we're going to get relegated. <laughs> you ended up having a yeah. great season. Um, but what I, what I have just struggled to understand is you went from Moyes then to, you know, to Louis Van Gaal, who was a possession-based. And you went to Jose Mourinho, um, who, who was a completely different manager. So you're having four different sets of players. Um, and this, the money has been spent. It's just been spent poorly. And now you finally got a director of football and you, you're looking at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has done a great job in uh, purchasing 
you know, the right sort of profile of players. Now the next stage is, right, are they going to be stupid again and go and get a manager, let's say if Oli does lose his job, who is going to be a completely different style again. It's that continuity. I don't think there's a, an idea or a, or an understanding of what sort of manager and what sort of style the club wants to play. It should be like this, right? If a manager leaves tomorrow, there should be a direct football there and then it should be almost like the manager's replaceable. So imagine come in, like Bayern Munich, for example, you saw Flick go and Nagelsmann's come in and it's, it's seamless, and that's the way it should be at a club like Manchester United. It's just not, um, we're not planning three to five years in advance. It seems almost like it's a year, every single year, the plan's changing. So in that respect, I feel sorry for Solskjaer. But at the end of the day, when you're looking at uh, what the job he's done, he'll be a success for me. I'll look back in five years' time and I'll say, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer saved Manchester United from becoming an Arsenal. Really, it was it was that bad at Manchester United when Jose Mourinho left. And the problem is there's so, such a large section of the fan base just can't give him the credit. It's the abuse. That's why I don't like guys. It's the abuse, calling him a clown, PE teacher. But then the other side of the coin is that there's a, there's a large section of the fan base that can't be constructive with their criticism as well. If you criticise Oli, then you're, you're attacking Oli. So for me, the key is continuity. So, you know, if, if Oli does go and he's done a fantastic job, bringing someone in who will be able to carry on the great work, won't have to go and buy a whole brand new set of players over the next three years uh, to fit their style. There should be a continuity, and it's clear what Oli wants to do. The question is, does he have the, the ability to, to coach that into the side? Uh, I'm, I'm not convinced, guys, if I'm honest. Hader, lovely to chat to you. You can find Hader on the Masterclass podcast, which is via the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you head to sport-social uk click on podcasts at the top and you can find his show along with a load of other top shows there nice one hader appreciate it thanks guys we're talking london derbies next on football social daily it's arsenal versus crystal palace tonight and myself and niall will preview that game on football social daily after this football social daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We're going to focus on the London derby tonight. Now, two former Arsenal legends going head to head in Mikel Arteta and Patrick Vieira. Steve McNaughton's jumped on the podcast to help us preview this game. Hello, Steve. Welcome. Hello. You okay, Jim? What time do you call Sorry, this? <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. Just rock. He's had up. a lion. Yeah. <laughs> if only. Right, we're going to talk about Arsenal versus Crystal Palace. Two managers who I think probably knives were out for both these guys at the beginning of the season, Niall. But mm. Mikel Arteta's just won manager of the month after him turning Arsenal's form around. Crystal Palace, many, myself included, expected them to be at the wrong end of the table at this stage. I thought they were nailed on for relegation when they appointed Vieira, but he's brought a new style of football to Selhurst Park. So how do you rate these guys as we get into the quarter mark of the season? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting about Patrick Vieira. I think the Palace fans knew that when Roy Hodgson left, it was going to be difficult for them because Roy gave them that stability after the shambles that was Frank de Boer a few seasons ago. And although Crystal Palace never really did anything spectacular, they were solid. So solid but unspectacular is what I'd call them. And uh, they did so by playing quite a methodical style. They were good in some games, they were poor in others. And it was in Palace's inconsistency uh, that they were consistent, if there is such a term. I think with Patrick Vieira, there's always going to be question marks because we haven't seen a great deal of him in terms of his coaching since uh, he retired as a player. He was a phenomenal midfield player for Arsenal. But in terms of his coaching style, we know that he sort of learned his trade 
uh, at the CFG, City Football Group. Um, I think he managed New York City, didn't he, in the MLS. And he also managed Nice over in France for a little period. But going from those sorts of jobs to the Premier League is always going to be a tough challenge. So there were always going to be a few queries over whether he would be able to step up to the challenge. And I think he's done so, so far. I think... You remember the Arsenal teams that Patrick Vieira used to play in, they were always difficult to beat and they were always in the game. And I think we've seen that from Palace. Seven games so far this season, just the one win, but they've drawn four games. They've been much harder to beat. They've only lost twice. So I think that will please Palace fans. We spoke about the average age of the Palace squad, how old the team was last season and how that needs to be reduced. The signings of, even before Vieira, in all fairness, from Hodgson, the signings of the likes of Ferguson, who's been injured and hasn't really played, but Ebere Eze and this summer Michael Elise, who I've been really impressed with since uh, he's come in to Selhurst Park. That's lowered the average age. And they've also kept the experience in there as well when they've needed it. The goalkeeper's relatively experienced. Milivojevic is an experienced midfield player. Um, MacArthur in the middle of the park and also Benteke as well up front. So you kind of got these flecks of youth in with the experience that was already there. And I think that proves for, for exciting times for Crystal Palace, who, although probably will be quite pleased with where they are in the table at the moment, um, mid-table, not tearing up any trees in 14th and on seven points, but certainly potential is there. And as for Arsenal, you're dead right. Mikel Arteta's turned things around. At the start of the first international break this season, I think after three or four games, they were bottom of the table, minus nine goal difference, the worst start in their history. And then they come back after the international break, uh, having been bottom of the table and pick up three wins in a row, including an impressive 3-0 win over Tottenham in the North London derby. And like you rightly point out, Mikel Arteta gets awarded Manager of the Month. So it's hard to know whether Arsenal's poor start is behind them well and truly because they're still 13th. And, you know, the Premier League is a ruthless beast. And teams like Brentford and Wolves, 9th and 10th respectively, Leicester dispatched Manchester United at the weekend and they've not really clicked this season. So it's difficult to know whether Arsenal are going to be able to keep that momentum and keep that form up and translate that into a winning run of 10, 12 games or unbeaten for that period of time. I personally can't see that, but certainly it's a much improved um, last few weeks than it was the first month or so of the season. So I'm quite looking forward to this one tonight. I think it could be an interesting game. But what I would say, just finally, Crystal Palace, by the way, how many London derbies do they want at the start of the season? <laughs> listen listen to this. They played Crystal. They played Charlton in pre-season and then they also played Reading, which isn't exactly too far out of London, is it? They started, uh, that's quite a long way. It's in Berkshire. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's only about 40 minutes. That's not far. And they started the season right against Watford and then Chelsea, then Brentford, then they had Watford again in the cup, then West Ham, then Tottenham, and then obviously Liverpool, uh, Brighton, Leicester, and now Arsenal. So they've Brighton's played pretty much derby, all the London know. teams. <laughs> it is a derby for them, or not a derby, derby, a rivalry. We have to call it a rivalry between Palace and Brighton. But um, but yeah, they, they, they haven't really left the capital too much. Going to give no, some geography lessons at some point over the next week, I think, of Brighton's in London. Um, Steve, yes. in terms of how Crystal Palace are playing this season, I think... That's going to buy Patrick Vieira extra time, even if results turn north, isn't it? Because I remember, as a West Ham fan, Sam Allardyce being at the football club. And it was a situation where the results were okay, the league position was okay, but the football was dire. I did not want to watch it at any point. I think Brighton have gone for a similar thing with Graham Potter coming into the club. And he maybe had a little bit of extra leeway because he was developing the football Patrick Vieira is in a similar place, isn't he, with Crystal Palace? He is is in a very similar place with him, but I think they will... 
he has got that 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 credit, if you like, and that, you know, due to the football opponent. I don't know Crystal Palace as well as I mean, Niall just rattled off all the names very impressively there, and, <laughs> and whatnot, you know. So I was just sitting there thinking, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, all I can say from my experience of watching them this season is the, when I went to Anfield and and, and we we played them and, and, and beat them three 0 they made us work incredibly mm. hard for that result. They pressed Liverpool. Um, made life really uncomfortable for us, and and you know, and they've got some good players in there as well. You know, the lad from Reading they signed his name, Alicia, is it? Yeah, very um, good. Very impressive. Looks absolutely mm. fantastic, and I think that Patrick Vieira has got them playing a brand of football that might take a little bit of time to click. And that, but I think they'll be they, they'll be thinking if they can finish top half the season under Patrick Vieira, a couple of decent cup runs, that that is a major step forward for the club, and mm, and I, yeah. you know, and I think. They might have a manager there that, if they do stick with him, that that, that can get him to, to their goals. Because Crystal Palace won't have goals to be in the top eight because you know they they just yeah. not set up as a club to be in the top eight. Um, but I think top half is is very very respectable for Crystal Palace, and I think you know Arsenal will need to be wary against Palace because it that could be a result that goes south for them. I think you're bang on, Steve, as well about Palace is. You know, they're not going to break the top eight, are they, really? They pay big wages, and I think they have to because they're a London club and you kind of have to, to meet the demand of, of player wages when you are a London-based club. See, I do know my geography, Jim. Uh, they're in Croydon, aren't they? <laughs> South London. Yeah, yeah I know yeah, what I'm talking yeah. about. Um, what Palace fans want, in my view, is they want silverware. They want a trophy. They've never won one. The club's over 100 years old. They've never won a major trophy. You know, they got to the FA Cup final, I think, in 2016 or 17 against Manchester United, and they mm. got beaten. <laughs> And I think in order to get Palace to the level where they can probably squeeze their way through to a, a League Cup final again or something like that and maybe pinch a silverware um, if it goes for them on the day, they just need to improve ever so slightly to get themselves in contention so that they can be difficult to beat and maybe they can pinch a result against a big boy if they come up against one in a cup draw because I think that's what they want. I really think you're right with the cup run thing, Steve. I think that they'd be happy to finish 14th and reach a cup final and have another stab at silverware because that's that's what all fans dream of is walking up those steps at, at Wembley and watching the captain lift the trophy. I mean, th- those are the moments you live for as a supporter. And sadly for Palace, they've never had those sorts of moments to look back on fondly. So they'll be hoping yeah. for that desperately and they'll be hoping that Vieira can provide a platform for that for them. They the have expect- had one though, you know, guys. Is that? They have had one. They have one at Wembley, you know. Yeah, they? because they um, uh, and I'm going back a little bit here. And some of the stat, you know, the the statos out there might um correct me on it. But Crystal Palace actually won the Zenith Data Systems Cup. Oh, um, <laughs> how can I forget that? I've got a tattoo beat, on that. They beat, <laughs> uh, they beat Everton in extra time, and I think it was in ni- like 1990 or something like that at Wembley. And, um, you think you've and, got this on Wikipedia yeah, in front and, of uh, you? <laughs> uh, you know, and um, it was a competition that was set up when the English clubs were banned out of Europe. They put an extra club competition in there, and uh, and Crystal Palace won it. There you go. So you've done them down there, Niall. I mean, the expectations at Arsenal are a bit. I don't I say this with the utmost respect to Crystal Palace, but I think it's true. The the expectations at Arsenal are loftier than a top half yeah. finish. They still want top four, if not top four, top six football. Is the key here now, Steve, consistency for Mikel Arteta? Because yeah. since he's come into the club, there's been moments where we've gone, you can see the plan working. Niall said earlier, the green shoots. The amount of times we've talked about the green shoots in Mikel Arteta's reign, is, <laughs> I, I've lost count. But those shoots seem to die away really quickly. Yeah. They're sprayed with weed killer. Yeah. He now needs to start finding that consistency week after week after week, doesn't he? Absolutely. You know, 100% right, Jim. I think that 
it's been one step forward, two steps back, hasn't it, during his reign? And then, you know, they go to and beat Tottenham 3-0 and you think, wow, you know, it's on. And then it capitulates again. Mm. And I think, for me, I think Arsenal are still renowned for having a soft centre. And, and, and until that is is fixed, it's never going to change. I think, you know, they've got to have a really steely midfield. Um, you know, they haven't got an N'Golo Kante in midfield. They haven't got a... Um, they haven't got a Fabinho in midfield. They just don't have players because Partey is, is is constantly injured since he's joined from Atletico Madrid. Mm. Um, and then you look at them at centre half, and you know you're looking at Ben Benjamin White as uh, he corrected <laughs> someone last week, and you know Gabriel, and you're still like thinking to yourself, it's okay, mm. but that's all you think, isn't it? You just think it's okay, and I think mm. on certain teams in the league they'll have a bit of joy with it, but if they come up against Man City, for example, you know, and, and De Bruyne and, and Foden and and Co. Raheem Sterling or you know Salah, you know Mane, and they're going still going to have a rough ride, them lads. And I think until they make them really themselves really difficult to beat and and be really rigid, but I mean, I think you know, and I know it's not his philosophy, but you know, would the Arsenal fans take Arteta winning one 0 every week and just mm. playing the most boring football in the world to get him in the, back in the Champions League? And I think for the season or two, they'd probably take that. Well, it's interesting you talk about the the weak spine of Arsenal and the fact they have got this soft core. So I think that's what we associate with Arsenal. But the results this season have been slightly different. They seem to have the problem scoring goals rather than conceding them. They've only scored five goals so far this season, and mm-hmm. they've still conceded a few sloppy ones as well. Nile, but is that a sign that actually there is something happening that Mikel Arteta has gone in there and he's gone in a similar way to Pep Guardiola did a couple of seasons ago at City when he needed a rebuild he needed a refocus and he built from the back forward can we say that this is evidence that a similar thing is happening at Arsenal or are they just not have they just not got the quality to score goals Aubameyang's been out for a while for example I don't know to be honest with you, Jim. And <laughs> it's funny because when we think of managers, the key word that's kind of cropped up in the Premier League over the last probably five or six years is philosophy. What's this manager's philosophy? Mm. We know what Pep Guardiola is all about. We know what Jurgen Klopp's all about. To an extent, we even know what people like Graham Potter. We know what these managers are about. We think we know what Mikel Arteta is about. We think we know the style of football he wants to play. But have we really seen that in abundance a lot of the time which is why we keep going back to that term green shoots because sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't and it's that inconsistency in terms of a style of play or performance that maybe is frustrating Arsenal fans and leaving people like myself you and Steve quite confused as to what happens next for Arsenal you know so have we seen really that the, the style of play in which Arsenal fans are expecting and in the time frame that Arteta's had, I don't know, is the true answer. In terms of that soft underbelly, it's quite funny because Arsenal have done a full 180, haven't they, really? Because back in the 90s and the early 2000s, when I was growing up and Arsenal were one of the top teams in the league, there was no soft underbelly at Arsenal. That spine of the team, was it was it was unbelievable. I mean, I mean just look at the opposition manager from tonight, Patrick Vieira, I mean, as a, as a prime example. If it wasn't him... It was someone like Tony Adams, Sol Campbell to an extent, someone like Ray Parler, who was probably more of a bench player by the end. You know, he had a bit of steel about him. And Arsenal do have players that do have steel about them, but do they have sensibility about them? I'm not sure. You can't look at Granit Xhaka and tell me that he doesn't have steel because he does. I mean, he's he's strong in the challenge. 
He's always up for the fight, but he doesn't have much of a brain on him when it comes to football in IQ. He's always getting sent off, making the wrong decision and uh, making things more difficult for his team. Probably not deliberately. Why would it be? It's just more of a product of the way he plays the game. And I think that's just partly what we see with Arsenal at the moment. When it comes to scoring goals, you're right. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's had a rough 18 months. I think that's partly due to some personal issues. There was an issue with the contract. He finally got given it and he hasn't found his shooting boots in the same way since he signed that new deal. Alex Lacazette is not going to sign a new contract at Arsenal. Looks like he's going to leave, if not in January, then in the summer, which means that they're going to have to rely on either young Eddie Nketiah, who I don't think's proven himself quite enough just yet to to fill the shoes of someone like Lacazette, who has a decent goal-scoring record in the Premier League, by the way. And then there's the other lad, Follerine Balogun, who's, for me, again, not ready. So you're looking at another potential addition needing to be made by Arsenal when it comes to goal-scoring. So... Definitely they have potential and they have players who to the future will be, um, in the future, sorry, will be will be great assets. Gabriel Martinelli, I think it looks like it could be a really exciting player. Bakayo Saka, Martin Erdegaard, these are all names in which you think, okay, they could really be something in the future. And they've also got players who've got experience at a decent level. Thomas Partey played in the Champions League on a number of occasions for Atletico Madrid and was very, very good. But if you look at the team on the whole... And maybe you compare them side by side, two squad lists alongside some of the other top teams in the Premier League. How many of those would you be swapping for players from the likes of Liverpool, even Manchester United to an extent? Probably not too many. And I think that says a lot about where Arsenal are at the moment as a club. Obviously, people will look at the ownership and things like that. But in terms of what we know about a style of play and scoring goals, three of those goals that you mentioned of the five they scored this season came in 35 minutes against Spurs. So we just need to see a little bit more from them going forward. Where it comes from, I'm not so sure, but they'll be hoping that they they do show it tonight against Palace. Two of the players you mentioned there, Granit Xhaka and Martinelli, both unavailable for Arsenal tonight because of injury. Game kicks off at eight. A win for Arsenal takes them up to the lofty heights of ninth, just above Brentford. Crystal Palace, if they get four goals, if they win by four, they could go up to 12th. Before we wrap up today's Football Social Daily podcast, I just want your response to a bit of breaking news, Niall and Steve. It's being reported by some news outlets at the moment, by but not all of them. And it is, it's got an air of speculation about it. But the story is that England are set for a Wembley Stadium fan ban by UEFA as punishment for the crowd trouble during the Euro 2020 final versus Italy. We saw fans without tickets storming the stadium we saw trouble on the concourse and outside the ground at Wembley we saw people enjoying the facilities that Wembley Stadium and the surrounding area offers from early doors that day which I think led to a lot of the problems if it ends up being a game behind closed doors which seems like the suggestion that's what's going to happen Steve is that just fair enough we call we call for it for other nations to have bands of their fans in stadiums so surely we have to take that medicine ourselves to a certain extent yeah, absolutely. I just think, I'm not sure one game's long enough though. Um, I think the scenes, mm. the disgusting scenes from from the final in July, are still quite fresh in our memory. I was talking to to, to a client of mine that I, that I worked with who was there and seen some absolutely horrific things. And unfortunately, we have a minority of England fans that do not know how to behave, that let the country down, and do it on a regular basis as well. And I think that. You know, having some games behind closed doors, um, is that a deterrent for them? Probably not. Uh, and I don't think one definitely isn't. I think one won't it won't even touch the surface. 
Um, I don't know what the answer is, and I don't think we've got long enough on the podcast for us to uh, you know <laughs> go into it. But um, I just think that you know we we, we I think that. The FA need to look at, try and identify these individuals that are involved in these things and remove their England supporters club, you know, capabilities yeah. or, uh, you know, um, credentials. Um, I, th- I just think that it, it, it will be standard vanilla way for just to go, here you go, England is one, a one-game mm-hmm. ban behind closed doors for them scenes where, um, you know, men with their children were being battered by thugs, mm-hmm. um, you know, when they were getting, you know, double jumped in through the barriers and everything like that. I just think that, we completely lost control of that situation at Wembley in July. Um, it's probably cost us um, the ne- a World Cup opportunity in 2030, mm-hmm. the, the behaviour of these England fans. Um, one game, not enough, needs to be to be harsher and we need to tackle these idiots that are going to watch England and ruin it for the good people that are going as a family to enjoy it. I mean, normally, I think, Steve, you're right. And it's a case of you find the individuals, you punish the individuals and... It ha- it's like the, the the punishment to the fans has to be a deterrent. In this scenario, Niall, there is an element of culpability from the FA in England yeah. because of the way that game was managed. I remember going to the World Cup in Brazil a few years ago and there were various rings of steel around the Maracanã where you had to go in and you showed your ticket on three, four occasions before you even got anywhere near the ground. But here, for the Wembley game, we saw a kind of lack of preparation. It's almost like the volume of people who wanted to get to the final completely caught the authorities off. So from that respect, this punishment does almost feel more appropriate because you're hitting England in the amount of money they'll make from tickets and hospitality and whatnot. And it's an embarrassment as well. Yeah, 100%. UEFA will have felt massively embarrassed at their showpiece final was marred by trouble caused by supporters trying to get into Wembley. And you mentioned about the Maracanã in Brazil and the security around it. You have to suggest the security around Wembley was substandard, to say the least. There's no chance that these many people should be able to just jump in the ground in the way that they did. Although, that being said, I have heard reputa- uh, I have heard Wembley has a reputation for being the easiest ground to jib in the UK. And by that, what I mean is it's the easiest ground to get into without a ticket. Um, I've heard that on numerous occasions, not just on social media, but from some people who I know go to England games, who obviously I won't name. They have made a comment that it's kind of widely known within the England supporting community that Wembley is the easiest stadium to kind of sneak into without a ticket. And that is an issue that England and the FA need to address. When it comes to banning England for a game, I think the problem is, which game do you ban England for? Because it will be UEFA who want to ban England. At the moment, we're in the midst of World Cup qualifiers. And so the next game that England have in the next international break against Albania is a World Cup qualifier. And even though it falls under UEFA jurisdiction, it is a FIFA-sanctioned competition, the World Cup. So therefore, UEFA actually are powerless to ban England for this game against Albania, in my understanding, because it's not a UEFA competition. England... Um, played Hungary and Hungary was supposed to play a game in front of an empty stadium but there were multiple Hungary fans in there because it was a FIFA tournament and so UEFA claimed that they were powerless to enforce a stadium ban on the Hungary fans who allegedly aimed racist abuse at the England players you know and that's been reported in newspapers that was from a news story back in September that that happened so you know England was supposed to play away in in Budapest um, in front of an empty stadium and the stadium was full uh, even though Hungary had a stadium ban because it was a FIFA World Cup qualifier. So actually, how do UEFA go about choosing which game to ban England from? 
because if it's a, a qualifier for the next Euros, whenever that is, 2024, the qualifiers won't start until probably after the World Cup. So actually, we're looking at a stadium ban that could take place two years or 18 months after the initial incident took place. So this is the thing, you know, you've got all these different governing bodies and organisations, but are they all in tune with each other? Are they all in sync? Do they communicate with each other? Sometimes you wonder whether they do or they don't. You know, UEFA can enforce a stadium ban. Maybe that FIFA will grant them the possibility of doing that against Albania. I don't know. But certainly there's a precedent been set now because UEFA said that they weren't able to ban the Hungary fans because it was a World Cup qualifier that was commissioned by FIFA. So, you know, England can turn around and say the same thing. And that's the problem that we've got now. So I think that certainly what everything Steve said and what you've said, I, I totally side with. I do think that the, the punishment uh, needs to be undertaken. I think it needs to be dealt with the utmost seriousness. And I do think Steve's right in what he says. I think it's probably tarnished the possibility of a World Cup coming to these shores in nine years' time. But at the same time, when is this ban going to be? It is only speculation at the moment as well. Sky Sports seem to be leading the charge on that news with a few other outlets here and there picking it up, but nothing has been confirmed by UEFA or England or anyone else as yet. We will keep you up to date on that and everything else on Football Social Daily throughout the week. And if you want to catch up on the weekend's action as well, you can find full match reports from every single Premier League game over on the website sport-social.co.uk. Steve, Niall, nice one. Cheers, lads. Thanks, boys. And we'll see you next time for Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.